the Starlink satellite network runs Linux and at a massive scale, we could potentially see 32,000 Linux systems orbiting the planet just about right now. Yeah, it's super interesting. These things are amazing, and I'm really excited for eventually having internet beamed to me from space from Linux. And they have a ton of fascinating details if you want more over in AMA on Reddit, including that they use the same Linux stack for the Dragon spacecraft and Starlink, and they're running with the preempt patch. Hello, friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes, and welcome to episode 358. We have a lot to get into today. I'm going to do something that I never saw coming. I'm going to attempt to defend ButterFS in this episode of your Unplugged program. I'll make the case here in a little bit. And then we want to have a discussion about how y'all because I'm in Texas, how y'all are feeling about GitHub's decision to start using main instead of master and OpenZFS's decision to change some of their terms. We'll talk about post-market OS as well and what they have for the PinePhone. And then towards the end of the episode, we will discuss what proprietary systems are doing better and what Linux needs to do right now to catch up. So to help us get to all of that... We've called upon the powers of Cheese and Drew. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, internets. And then like amulets attached to their belts of power, it is our virtual lug time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello, everybody. Amazing. I am very pleased to have you here, and I, I don't even have the full list in front of me, but I sense a strong presence. I sense a strong presence. I don't have the full list because I'm broadcasting from Lady Jupes down in Texas. Leander, Texas, I think is how you say it, which is Austin's fastest growing town. Did you know? I'll fill you in here, Chris. We've got 13 fine folks joining us via Mumble and a whole bunch more over in Quiet Listening. Yeah, they figured out the Quiet Listening thing, didn't they? I like that. That's pretty great. We do these shows here on Tuesdays when we uh, are doing them, which is just about every Tuesday at noon Pacific. So let's get into a few things. Um, I am here in Texas right now and and uh, enjoying the heat. It's one of those weird ones. Let's see. Are you guys familiar with the feels with versus the actual temperature? I don't even know why we use anything but feels like. You know what I mean? Tinkering with weather. According to my sensors, it's partly cloudy in this municipality. They also found radon in your home. <laughs> Great. So <laughs> it's 95 degrees technically, but it's one of those where it feels like 105. What the hell is that? That's commonplace here in Texas, right? Because of the humidity. And uh, I'm actually surprised that it feels like 105 up there in Austin. It's usually a little drier there than it is down here on the Gulf Coast. So I have my server booth open right now and ventilating because I can't get it below 95 degrees in Lady Jupes. And I've shut down one of my Raspberry Pis to try to reduce the thermal load, and it has gone nowhere. (laughs) Thankfully, I SSH in, and um, Ubuntu 20.04 Server Edition puts right on the message of the day what your CPU temperature is. So as soon as I SSH into that sucker... I know what my temperature is. And it's so far, they're around 65, 67 degrees. So I, I, I'm not too concerned, but it's... I like the idea of you, you know, making yourself more uncomfortable for the sake of your technology. 
I am. I am radiating the heat into the RV, and I have the ACs off for the show, so it's a double whammy. I do have one fan going, one lone fan. All right, well, let's get into the show, because we have a whole bunch to talk about today, and I wanted to start with something that's going to get me ridiculed. I like to do that these days. You know, first I'll say something that's somewhat reasonable about Microsoft, and I'll have people write attack articles about me. And so now I'm going to say something somewhat reasonable about ButterFS, and I'm going to get attacked by friends and by people who don't even know me. But um, I think it is time to defend ButterFS a bit after having recently gone through my own trials and tribulations with it. If you listened a couple of weeks ago, I I had a ButterFS snafu when I was in the middle of a file system conversion and like a dummy, I switched my Wi-Fi networks, dropped my SSH session and borked the entire thing. One of my ultimate all time will never forget mistakes in data loss. It's like you've never admined a box before. Oh, Wes, when I did it, I knew it. I felt all the years of doing IT shame. Like I just, I knew I had made a mistake immediately. And Hadia saw it in my face, my wife. <laughs> she was standing across from me from the room. She's like, uh-oh, what happened? Did somebody die? <laughs> right. <laughs> just good data, honey. Just good data. So let's talk about this because today I had the opportunity to attend a Fedora working group meeting where they brought on some developers from Facebook who use ButterFS in production on their servers. They brought in the main developer of ButterFS, who also happens to be a Facebook employee, and a systemd developer, as well as other Fedora party members, uh, workstation developers, and uh, myself was there, as well as Neil, uh, who's in the mumble room. He was there. And the conversation was really around Facebook's use of ButterFS, their lessons learned in production, and their overall um, opinions, takes, lessons learned that they could kind of pass on to the Fedora team who has currently an open bug about revisiting the default partitioning layout for Fedora Workstation. And this is the genesis of this entire conversation, I believe. The Workstation Working Group has to look at this problem that has arisen with the use of Docker and FlatHub. The default disk layout in this bug report says that it's problematic. Having a separate home and small root means running out of disk much more quickly. And uh, the bug submitter says, in fact, it's actually happened on every single machine I have when I'm deploying a lot of flat packs. Things are a lot different, they write, since we made the decision to have the current default disk layout. We have a much more reliable upgrade. Very true. I agree with that. In addition to a lot of new technology that eats up a lot of root disk space. Now, think about this problem. If you're Fedora and you think perhaps you have to reevaluate the way you are default partitioning every workstation install, at the same time, you have distributions like Ubuntu deploying ZFS, you have distributions like SUSE deploying ButterFS, and they're solving these problems and gaining benefits like compression and snapshots and copy on write and checksums and sending and receiving data that is really fantastically awesome. And you also have to solve a problem that traditionally you've done with tools like LVM and, and Extended 4 that perhaps are no longer as competitive with what the rest of the commercial market has. See the rest of our topic later today, like later versions of NTFS Apple's APFS on their Macs and on the iPhones. They're, and, and, and honestly, Ubuntu is 2004. I mean, shipping ZFS and making an option you can check 
it's a competitive consideration, even if they don't want to come right out and say it. Combined with trying to solve a real problem that that has presented itself to its users who are using things like containers and flat packs, which Fedora is driving. And they have to pick a path here. And so the timing of this was pretty important. And bringing these developers in from Facebook, I thought, was a great way to hear how folks do it in production. There's some context for like why we have the setup the way we do today. With LVM and and having X4 for Workstation and XFS for Server, the, the reason we have it set up this way is that even back when we made this change like over a decade ago, the concept of being able to grow or reconfigure the storage was considered very valuable and necessary, especially as people's systems tended to change over time. And like one of the core tenets is that we don't want the system to be a pain for people to adjust it as their needs change. Like if you need to have more space, you should have an easy way to slot in more space. So that's why Workstation has for the longest time done X4 on LVM so that we get these things and we get like 60 to 70 percent of the way there. And, you know, as a matter of public record, um, when the Workstation Working Group was first founded um, several years ago, I think it was like 2012, 2013 or something like that, like as part of the original design doc, we always aimed to move towards an advanced um, file system technology to unify our stack and simplify the user experience for storage management. And in there, we listed ButterFS as one that we wanted to go towards uh, when we felt we were ready for it. And when the, when the, when the developers felt it was ready for that, periodically, members of the Workstation Working Group, as well as other members of Fedora, have visited this, tried it out, and evaluated it. I've, you know, as, as I've stated many times before, I've personally been running ButterFS on all of my systems for the past five years. And with containers and flat packs, and even people who are packagers, like you're using tools like Mock, which makes Cheroots and image roots and things like that to do clean builds, it's it eats all of your space up so very quickly. These were not all demands that we had when we made this decision long ago, and we still have all the same needs that we had before. Also, I would point out that when these decisions were made, SSDs weren't nearly as common. Right. So like you had a performance limit that you really just weren't going to have to deal with um, in software. And now we're, we're we've blown past that point, like I think arguably three years ago when laptops started switching to SSDs by default for everything. And and there's a whole new set of challenges. And trim is, is more of a consideration now as well. You have to have a file system that's aware that it's writing to an SSD and support that. There's those issues as well. And laptops now, just almost all of them ship with SSDs. Um, now, the thing is, and I think it's detectable in these conversations, but I don't I don't recall it being directly addressed is Butterfest has a bit of a reputation problem. I just recently talked about me using Butterfest on my Raspberry Pis. And uh, God bless him, Jim and Alan just think I'm completely insane. And in talking to them, I realized even I have my own biases against it. Like the data I'm currently using on ButterFS is it's it's replaceable. It's not it's not like my only copy because I was playing it safe. But I think one of the things that I took away from these developers at Facebook is it's not the same ButterFS as it was a few years ago when I was running Arch and I hit that bug that prevented my system from booting. It's so hard, right? I mean, we have all these horror stories from the early years or from whenever, 
But unless you're someone who uses it in production or maybe a developer, how do you really go assess the current state of the art and like what the limitations are? Right. You have to keep checking in on things in the open source world because they just continually improve. And if you've made your mind up about something based on an opinion you collected a few years ago, it's almost guaranteed that if that project is under any kind of active development, your opinion is now out of date. And Joseph, who is the lead developer of Butterfest, and he's employed by Facebook full time, and he seems like a very genuine guy who is a real straight shooter, says that a lot of these faults that we find with ButterFS now is actually ButterFS exposing hardware problems. Obviously, I'm very familiar with every problem we ever get in ButterFS because it ultimately lands on me. Um, uh, like David has said, you know, we do not, we've not really had any issues that are directly ButterFS's fault. And in fact, most of the things that we find with ButterFS that I assume are ButterFS's faults have ended up being hardware. So we found interesting problems where like, a RAID controller would write to the middle of the disk on reboots. Uh, we found this because ButterFS started throwing checksum errors. And um, yeah, that was super fun. And previously, these files, these controllers had had XFS on them. And so we had been randomly corrupting um, AI test data for years. This bug had existed for years. Uh, ButterFS found it. Um, we found a variety of microarchitectural issues in CPUs because of the way ButterFS kind of hammers on the CPU with compression stuff. Um, by and large, uh, we have, you know, we all know as file system developers that disks are awful. Uh, ButterFS has really highlighted this fact. Yeah, the chat room says, boy, that that recording is horrible. Uh, yeah, it is true. It is, uh, it is uh, the uh, hashtag... Uh, Zoom meetings reality. Actually, this is blue jeans, but that's how it goes. Uh, but that is it's an opportunity to hear from the lead developer of ButterFS. And he says there that they've gotten to a point now where a lot of times it's some esoteric aspect of the CPU in the disk or just a crappy piece of hardware that's causing errors. And file systems that we traditionally use, like XFS and Extended 4, my two go-tos, don't necessarily find that stuff. And so we just go along blissfully ignorant of issues that ButterFS is raising. And we often will attribute a failure to ButterFS when in reality it's ButterFS warning you about something that's wrong with hardware. Obviously, it's not every time, but it's more and more common now when we, when ButterFS does run into issues like this. Now, this is Alex. He is in charge of literally millions of servers at Facebook. And he says, you just have to simply accept uh, accept. It's it's not the ButterFS of a few years ago. Like you can essentially think of like the fleet as like a big stress test. Uh, I mean that's how it feels to me. Pretty stressful. Um, and when we're pushing these things out, like every time you're doing like a million ButterFS operations now, right? And so uh, in the past several years, I will say that like, well, I think Joseph has been awesome from the very beginning. Um, the number of issues that like have been top of mind for us from even dealing with ButterFS on like the edge cases you're talking like millions of servers like something goes wrong and somebody's mad about it we got to figure out what happened has decreased dramatically um and so it's like a very reliable file system for us even under the you know we've spent up containers for builds spin up containers for services all this other crazy stuff using snapshots and compression and a bunch of the new stuff um it's been like super rock solid and he mentions we're pushing out updates multiple times a day to the facebook.com website 
And when we push these things out, they're doing it at the file system level across millions of servers where there are millions of file system operations per server on millions of servers. So it's really the definition of a stress test. Now, it's a particular use case, but over time, they kept finding all the different edge cases and they have the developer there and they've fixed them when they've come across them. And it's sort of been in like this intense incubation chamber for the last few years. A benefit that ZFS, I think, gained from Sun. Initially, it was developed in-house where they just kept throwing their edge cases at it and made it better and better and better. And then, and that was like a three to five year development period. I don't recall what the time frame was. And then they released that publicly for after that. Yes. I mean, it's almost a mythical sort of, oh, the, you know, the birthing of ZFS inside Sun. And that's why it has such better foundations than ButterFS. Right. As if these things over time don't improve. I think that's I think that's a common myth associated with ButterFS. But then, well, it, it it does seem like there's a sort of attitude, true or not. Um, we can debate that with with evidence. But th- just that ButterFS foundations were bad and are bad, and it can't be salvaged, at least from some on the ZFS side. Yeah, and uh, maybe I bought into some of that. Uh, I I don't know. I, I will see. Right, I'm now running it in production myself, so I will find out. Either I will eat these words, or it will turn out that things have improved. But there's other aspects than just laying the files out on a disk. There is there is benefits to checksums, but there's benefits to snapshots. But there's also benefits in production on a laptop or on a server to compression. And it's not just because compression is awesome. Also, I wanted to speak to the compression thing. We don't just use compression because it's awesome, because we can save space. But it also drastically reduces write amplification issues for us. And so we're talking about like drastically extending the lifetimes of our very, very terrible solid state drives, you know, laptop class solid state drives. Um, we extended their lives quite a bit and saves us quite a bit of money just by turning on compression. This is something else I learned in this uh, working group chat is Facebook is buying like the cheapest SSDs they can get their hands on because they're buying so many at such a scale and they're throwing them in, in machines. It's not like they're doing this with enterprise grade disks. In fact, they're doing this a lot of times with laptop grade disks. So uh, ironically, ButterFS is getting punished on a disk that shares a lot of characteristics with what you or I would use. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? It's sort of the next, like, you know, commodity version of that. You don't have this one bespoke giant array because, well, that won't work for Facebook scale. And so you have these, you know, these cheapo components that combinations of open source software like Linux and open source and ButterFS make usable. I started off by saying that Joseph has identified that a lot of times issues that we attribute to ButterFS eventually boil down to weird hardware problems. Well, this could actually be a real user problem in production at scale. If, say, Fedora, for example, were to switch over to ButterFS and there was a conversion process and then people had finicky SSDs, they may start seeing a lot of errors that they weren't even aware of, not necessarily because of ButterFS, but because ButterFS identifies them. And this creates a interesting situation for a workstation OS. I think ButterFS will definitely expose more errors. So if you had a situation where the underlying storage device is slightly wonky, or as Joseph mentioned, there's like silent data corruption, that would definitely become visible. Uh, in my opinion, that's a good thing uh, because I 
I definitely do not want to get random silent corruption on my device. It does mean, however, that if your laptop is wonky and you're running ButterFS, you will probably become more aware of the wonkiness than you were before, where you might have been going merrily your way without realizing there was silent data corruption. Now, that sounds both like a good thing, but think about the bad side to this. Bad side to this is if your file system in the past would just continue along completely ignorant or ignoring the situation, as an end user, you would just go about your day. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe that picture has been ruined or that MP3 will never play again, but what do you care? You know, you can still get to your system, your your web browser. As far as you're blissfully unaware, as far as you're concerned, nothing is wrong and you're still getting your work done. ButterFS is much more sensitive to that. And getting those files back after some sort of catastrophic situation has happened traditionally has been tricky. But Joseph's been creating certain recovery tools that look pretty solid and are starting to get upstreamed into the mainline kernel. You know, speaking from the guy who usually ends up having to put random users' data back together, we have I have a lot of, over the years, written a lot of tools to recover because it's really, like, ButterFS's ability to find crappy drives is really good. Uh, the problem is, is we are also pretty vulnerable to crappy drives because of the way we do things. And so, like, whereas XFS goes and finds, like, a bad block that doesn't make any sense, whatever, it just, like, anything else that doesn't kind of work in that area, it continues to work. It's being a kind of, like, half copy off stuff, whereas ButterFS is just going to be like, uh, no, you don't get anything, <laughs> um, which is like a really shitty user experience. Um, so yeah, that's historically how it's worked. Uh, we have more and more, like I wrote a bunch of tools, like offline tools to copy stuff. Um, those offline capabilities are making their way into the kernel themselves. In fact, most of them now exist where you can mount the file system read-only in recovery mode and it'll just throw it'll throw errors for things that are, have errors. But generally, if it can get the stuff, it'll let you copy it. Um, so historically, it was really, really bad. You, you basically had to hope that you could get me on IRC to recover your data. <laughs> um, or fun, And then after that, use one of the awful tools that I had written to go and just copy stuff. And now we're to the point where those strategies exist in the kernel themselves. I don't think he anticipated that uh, you attending this meeting meant throwing him under the bus on a podcast. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. And he, uh, what I love about it, honestly, is just how really open and honest they were through this entire process. Like, yeah, this is an issue. The users will think this is a problem. This is probably how it should work. But users are going to consider this a problem. And there is multiple solutions. And part of it is on the distribution to solve that front end. I think that's what's great about having that kind of frank conversation is – yeah, this thing's going to detect that stuff. And in the past, you have just been ignorant of it. And you need to probably eventually come up with a way to even surface that to end users in a way that doesn't leave their system unbootable. And to that end, there could be in the next maybe one or two kernel releases, a, for lack of a better term, a simply don't care mode, just continue on. Um, obviously be read-only, it'd still be protecting your data, but the idea would be just throw the system in a, yeah, I know I've got a problem, but I've got to boot up so that way the user can solve it. And so the, the idea is in the next version or two is to automatically turn these options on. It's like, okay, we aborted the transaction because of corruption. We'll put you in the 
we don't care mode. So you can just do what you need to do. Um, we haven't done that work yet because we're still validating those part works. Um, but that being said, that's the ideal, right? Is that we want to, you know, you suffer some sort of corruption that you didn't notice. You boot up the box. That's the biggest trick, right? Is booting the box and the file system refuses to mount read writes. And suddenly you're kind of stuck in a shell. We want to be able to like let you continue to boot. So you can troubleshoot and fix it. And so what I have done in the past is I've made like my root file system extended four, and then I'll make my data drives a different file system. Right. Just so you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me to hear a little bit more from ButterFS, you know, developers and people hands-on deploying it. And I think that's one area where sort of paradoxically being a part of the kernel, well, we all have huge respect for the kernel and it's deployed in production in so many places, but that lack of, you know, sort of representation, community, um, a couple of voices to represent the people working on it. You, I mean, CFS has its own whole GitHub repository with issues and things, so you kind of get a sense of who's working on this, what are the real problems, and before this, like, I, I never got that from ButterFS, and so it just felt like a, a sort of void of like, well, is this just something that's kept in the kernel, or is it something that people are really using? Yeah, it's been under active development, active troubleshooting, and it's been punished at a, at a massive scale. And there's new things coming to it. It's not done. Native encryption is coming down the pipeline. And Neil asked a good question. He said, will the new native ButterFS, because you could use DMcrypt today, but will the new native ButterFS encryption support live encrypting a, a, a series of data, a drive or a folder or whatever? Can we encrypt something that has been traditionally unencrypted? Can we take that and encrypt it with this new native ButterFS encryption? Because traditionally, that's a huge pain in the butt. And what I like about this answer that Joseph gives is it's using a code pathway that is tried and true, and you will be able to do a conversion of non-encrypted to encrypted data. Compression and encryption will go through the same data paths for us. Like it's essentially just like a data transformation thing, um, and it'll work this. It'll take advantage of the same infrastructure that compression has. So if you want to suddenly compress everything, you compress it and tell it, "Hey, rewrite everything." You can like the auto defrag can do it on demand, or you can say re-defrag the whole file system and defrag essentially just means rewrite. Um, and then you it rewrites and it goes to the data path for compression and recompresses. The same will work for encryption. So if you want to go and encrypt a sub-volume and do that, and the um, the tooling will just automatically kick off the thing to rewrite everybody, and then as that you know. As that happens, everything re-encrypts. You don't have to blow everything away and try again. Wow. Doesn't that seem smart? Just use the same data pathway that compression's already using, tried and true. People use that at scale all the time. For all of its perceived faults, it's just such a flexible file system, you know, because you can do these things where you can decide like, oh yeah, all of a sudden I don't want comp copy on write over there, or all of a sudden, yes, I want compression and I want encryption over here. It was a fascinating talk. Um, I'm glad I had a chance to attend. And it did make me reconsider uh, the state of ButterFS, which just sort of happened to fit perfectly with me just redeploying it in production again. Anyways, let's move on to something that's happening, um, admittedly, in a much broader context than what we normally talk about here on the show. And that is various different open source projects have stepped up the pace in which they are looking at their code base, they're looking at the terms and the vernacular that they use, and they're shifting to things that they believe are 
a little more sensitive, a little more understanding. And probably the behemoth in this discussion is since we all gathered here last time, GitHub has decided to start using the term main instead of master as a branch name. And additionally, the ZFS co-creator, Matthew Ahrens, has decided to take a uh, search through the code base and make changes there. This week, uh, Matt Ahrens decided to send a poll request in to remove any unnecessary references to slavery, uh, as he put it, from the OpenZFS code base. He says the, quote, horrible effects of human slavery continue to impact society. He goes on to write, the casual use of the term slave in computer software is unnecessary, and it's a reference to a painful human experience. And chiming in a bit more about the project's acceptance, well, the short patch switches the script zpool.d slash slaves for zpool-d slash dm dash deps. And usage of slave to dependent or dep throughout the code and the documentation. There's no change to the way OpenZFS works, and the change was accepted by the project team. They do note, though, uh, in what I think is maybe a dig on Linux, uh, that references to slash sys slash class slash block slash star dev slash slaves remain because that path is determined by the Linux kernel, and working around that would require elevated privileges, a situation Arends described as unfortunate. Also, Redis and Python shifted away from the use of master and slave. OpenShift dropped the whitelist and blacklist terms. And the GitHub command line and desktop interfaces replaced master with trunk or main, depending on which UI you're using. I think also Apache made some changes fairly recently as well. And I mean, a ton of these changes too. You mentioned like Redis and Python and, and Ruby. You know, the, some of this stuff has been in the works for a long time. And so I, I thought maybe we'd have a moment here on the show because this is something that's rippling across open source software. And I feel like we should we should address it. And to avoid it would be uh, not only a disservice, but somewhat obvious thing to avoid. And so I thought, let's let's discuss this. Let's actually have a conversation around this and see kind of what our thoughts are on it. And I want to keep this as a just a, a, a as an inclusive, open conversation as we can. And see what see what you all think. I'll, I'll start with initially. I have to be honest. I do have a bit of a bias towards this. Where I, my first reaction to this is sometimes it feels a little bit like small change for small feelings. But the more I thought about it, the more that started to shift. Um, but I, I don't want to hog the mic on this one. I kind of want to. I kind of want to pass it around. And I thought maybe I'd start with you, Drew, since you haven't you haven't talked for a bit here on the show. Um, I'm kind of curious what you think about projects projects that are going through their code base and they're replacing terms like master or slave with something else like original or uh, dependent. I think it's indicative of the way things are moving in sort of our political climate and the idea that we need to be more sensitive to different cultures. I think it's a good thing, personally. I always felt a little weird going with the master slave terminology just because of the implications that it has and seeing projects like you know reaper come out with their new edition is codenamed black lives matter and they had this exact change it speaks to the fact that technology and technology companies are 
understanding that we're part of the greater world and we need to be sensitive to the things that are happening around us. We don't exist in a bubble and everything touches technology these days. So we need to move with the times. So I agree with all of that. I think there are a couple of valid slippery slope style arguments in which you could argue, where does the change stop? I want to read a couple of comments that struck me. King32 on Reddit wrote, as a black software engineer, I think this is nonsense. I thoroughly dislike how much energy and attention this one specific issue is getting and wish it were invested in something that would actually improve the workspace for minorities. I realize this isn't a zero sum, but it just feels like a massive distraction. And I think that was perhaps how how I felt initially to this issue. But after thinking about it a little bit, my opinion on that is I disagree. I feel like you can't tell people where to spend their time and energy in open source. People scratch their own itch. And if this is a matter that they feel is important to them, they're not necessarily taking it away from something else because they were never going to contribute it to that to begin with. I do wish it worked like that. I wish I could say, everyone all at once, let's focus on the desktop. But it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, please fix the Linux desktop. But no, it doesn't. No. And I think, so I, it isn't a near, it, when we, he, and he, he, he says that, he admits it. It's not a zero-sum game. That is literally what it comes down to. Open source is, a, is not a zero-sum game. You can do one thing while not taking away from another. But that said, another comment that I, I did initially kind of resonate with, but then upon further reflection, have thought a little more about. Uh, and that's from uh, B. Bradley. He says, Master in this context means main or principal, like a master copy. So when we're talking about the GitHub change, I totally understand when it's specifically used in the master or slave context, but this seems like an effort which could be spent on other more effective means by improving the workplace for black Americans. I think what we have to think about here is it's a, it's a, it's a broader picture than one group or demographic. It includes all of us. It's not just Americans. It's it's a worldwide community here. I know this is going to be difficult, but when I see this situation, I think to myself, language changes all the time. These particular types of changes are generally fairly straightforward. The most rigorous aspect of the change is us humans have to learn a new nomenclature. And part of being understanding and kind to people is being willing to constantly adapt. Our regular on the show, Carl, uh, linked in the JB Telegram group, a, a great video by Rich Bowen, um, all about welcoming nomenclature. And I think it's a great primer if you'd like to start thinking about and talking about some of these issues. And it really, at the end of the day, at least in my mind, comes down to compassion and empathy. And like, we, we need to be open, especially, I mean, I'll just say like, as a privileged middle class white male, I need to be open to experiences that are different than me. And you know, a lot of this stuff is embraced by the projects themselves, and there are people willing to do the work. And it's just a tiny little bump in all the change of technology that we're constantly accommodating to. I mean, before long, we'll have forgotten about this, and we'll be dealing with the next thing that SystemD eats. <laughs> it may seem like a small change. It may seem like it's an, a nothing burger of an argument to say, well, we should change Master Slave to something different. But we're talking about huge systemic problems that face our entire society. And you don't make big changes with 
just large movements all at once. It takes a lot of smaller changes to really get from point A to point B in this context, because we're fighting centuries of problematic thinking. And yeah, the master-slave argument, it seems small, but it is important. And it's one step out of many steps that need to be taken. While it might seem like a small change, it's something that uh, projects like this can easily implement. It's not like it's going to take a ton of time to implement this, but it also brings awareness so that future projects can think about these things when they're developing their projects. So I think that it's a it's a win-win for the open source community. And I mean, obviously we can do be doing things better, but I think where you can do something and where you can make change, then why not do it? So just just take that leap and do it. That's kind of where I come down on this is it is a simple search and replace. And if it means that 10 years, because this stuff continues to evolve, right? So if it means five, 10 years from now, a black developer or a Native American developer or a Chinese developer, whoever can sit down and and not have a tinge of, hmm, I'll give you a reframe where this kind of helped me rethink about this, because obviously this is not an issue that directly impacts me. And so you're, what, what I have to do is I have to try to put myself in other people's shoes. And I think that's a good exercise. And I tried to make it kind of, what about things that trigger me and uh, what gets me kind of upset? And that is when people just excessively use militarized terms for things and projects kind of have like a military nomenclature. I don't like that. I think it's disrespectful to our service members. I think it exaggerates what they're doing. I think it it just is it's gross. And it it actually kind of grosses me out when I start seeing projects use military terms for things. And that's a form of language I just I don't like. Now, should that be included in this conversation? I think it kind of is one of those things you have to take in every particular scenario and evaluate it on its own merits. I personally I might draw the line at renaming a project like GIMP because of the historical context, because it's an acronym, all of these all of these aspects to it. I kind of scoffed at the GIMP renaming project. But this is an area where you could argue maybe we should consider things like that should be changed. And I I I landed on I'm going to keep using GIMP and I'm going to keep calling it GIMP. Yeah, and I don't think there will be a, you know, a one size fits all answer here. Um one great thing in that video I mentioned was just how often some of these changes, especially around like whitelist and blacklist, they're just better, more clear terms that don't rely on on metaphor that can get your point across. And then I think there are also going to be times where yeah, you know, it it's just it's too late to make that change or we all already use know that project and there's a context around it. So it's it's not some, you know, decree from on high. It's more about thinking about it actively and making the right calls where they make sense. And as a project, maybe thinking about, well, who do we want to attract as contributors? Who do we who do we not want to turn away as contributors? And considering that, I think this is actually kind of trickier than you think because there's not necessarily inherent ethical standards or problems around software or hardware. Um, you know, when I had IDE hard drives and I had a master and a slave, I never thought about um, that in a human context. I simply thought about it in this is the master device and this is a secondary device. But I also don't have any background or experience that that might change the way I perceive that. And my thought of it was, well, if language changes all the time 
And this technology is a kind of a search and replace and submit a new pull request and it's done kind of job. And the biggest negative that you could really quantify is we have to learn a new term. Well, that's just not enough to say don't do it. Honestly, I can learn a new term. Technology, it doesn't care. It doesn't care if it's master or it's slave. It doesn't care if it's original and secondary. It doesn't care. And as people, change happens all the time in other contexts as well. And so I kind of come down on the side of generally, it's a good thing. And I I think having reflected on it, I can see where Matt Aarons is coming from for OpenZFS. I can see where GitHub is coming from. I can see where PostFix is coming from. That's an interesting one. So the PostFix email daemon, as you can imagine, has lots of master and slave commentary throughout it. And they are embarking on what will likely end up to be a multi-year change. They will roll it out slowly to warn users about retired vernacular. And then eventually the retired vernacular will just stop working. Yeah, that's just it. We can find solutions here that, you know, for whatever impacts that may be detrimental to some groups, we can figure out ways to ameliorate those and um, otherwise... Let's all get on with the great business of open source. Yeah, really, quite quite literally, change is always happening, and um, these things are always shifting. And I know it can be hard. I know it can be it can seem exhausting. It can seem never ending. And um, my answer to that is, welcome to the human race. <laughs> we're all we're all a real pain in the neck. <laughs> I really kind of see that more as the beginning of the conversation, not our final word on it. And uh, it's also open to anyone who's listening and wants to give us their, give us their feedback at linuxunplugcom slash contact. But post-market OS is doing something the Librem 5 never did, and that is actually shipping the GUI based on GNOME to end users. Post-market OS traditionally has been really kind of a basic OS that you could get going on older hardware that had been abandoned. But they seem to have taken a liking to the Pine Phone. And they say there's a few things about it that we like. And uh, on their post that we'll have linked, they have a quick rundown. Number one, mainline Linux kernel with few patches and everything getting upstreamed. Free software GPU driver. A modem that is separated from the main CPU a removable battery, a micro SD card slot, a headphone jack that also doubles as a serial port, and hardware kill switches. You bring all these together with some reasonable specs, and it seems like people are taking a real liking, and post-market OS is one of them. Interestingly, this community edition will be shipped with Fosh. And Fosh, if you're not familiar, is the phone shell running on top of various GNOME components developed by Purism for their own Linux smartphone. Of course, the previously mentioned Librem 5. Yeah, how about that? Um, so the um, Fosh UI will get in the hands of end users via the Pine phone. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. You think that, you think that, that bugs purism a little bit? <laughs> you gotta wonder. You do have to wonder. Although, regardless, I think it's kind of interesting as a reflection on, like, how do you manufacture and build these things? And maybe some of the differences between experience in the pine phone side of building hardware and then some experience that we have to which grant here on you know on the purism side of of working upstream with some of those vendors and being able to build seemingly a shippable if not by them phone shell what you're going to get here is a post-market os community edition which will come with a new on-device installer 
and it will ask you for a password and then it will encrypt the installation. And you have a GUI graphical environment that's easy to flash or pre-order on the Pine phone. And I think it's pretty noteworthy because until the Pine phone really became an actual product in end users' hands, we weren't sure how all of the different open source projects would adapt. Would this actually become viable? I, I just want to propose to you that we fast forward, I don't know, let's just say a year, and maybe they're working on uh, PinePhone 2 and the Librem 5 in a fairly usable condition has shipped. We now have ourselves, I, I think you could argue, a bit of a baby ecosystem. Cute little ecosystem. Yeah, I love it. I'm totally sold. And I need to get some Pine devices myself, which is why I'm interested to note here that pre-orders open early July 2020. That's this year, for those of you who've lost track of what day, let alone year it is. Um, we'll have a link to the announcement in the show notes, of course, over at linuxunplugged.com slash 358. Um, you know, after July, then you'll be able to buy the Postmarket OS PinePhone Community Edition for $150, plus any relevant shipping and handling costs, and maybe import charges, depending on your region. And in what I love is a, you know, nice piece of transparency, the Pine Store is going to donate $10 per sale to Postmarket OS. They also have a little thanks to uh, Purism for for pushing the free software smartphone revolution, Wes. Wouldn't it be interesting if some of the biggest contributions out of Purism on the mobile side don't actually come from the Librem 5 directly, but from the software created for the Librem 5 that got upstreamed? I think that's just more magic of open source. I think you might be right, Wes. All right. Well, with that said, you know, we are well into the show at this point. It really got away from us, but we have to do a bit of housekeeping. There's not a lot of housekeeping this week because, honestly, I'm on the road, so there's not much to report on. But I do want to mention the LUP Lug every single Sunday at noon Pacific. It's on the official live calendar now. It's noon Pacific, which is the time we do this show. You just go convert that to your time now at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. An easier option might just be to show up in the mumble room every day at uh, noon Pacific and just see who's around. And at least two days a week, you'll find somebody. A 24-7 live stream monitor. You probably want to have an entire box, just an entire computer dedicated to just the mumble room going all the time. And then what I would do is I'd probably pop off at least three computers for twitter feeds you know you got to get wes's feed up there you got to get my feed up there you got to get the jupiter signal and if you're really dialed in you probably got to have another another computer for cheese's feed and drew's feed you never know what's going to happen right damn right or just check jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar i mean whatever works for you we also have a chat room irc chat room at irc.geekshed.net and it's at pound hashtag quadrothrope lup lug and you can uh, chat along in there while we have our special get-togethers. I tried to join just briefly while I was visiting family this week. I was walking up to a family store. And I'm like, oh, the Lup Lug. So I jump on there, tap it. Hello, everybody. How's it going? <laughs> and do one of those. All yeah, right. Thanks. Okay. I'll see you later. And I jump out. But I try to do that even if I can't hang out. But often we're hanging out, chatting about things. And uh, people are creating reasons for you to buy cool hardware devices. What's nice about it is, you know, the mumble room is definitely the best thing about this show. But we never have enough time to discuss everything. And the Luplug, well, that's the place to do it. That's right. Also, if you are on the Twitters, I'm sorry, but check out at JupiterSignal. 
It's the network account. Anything going on with the network or any particular episode release gets announced at Jupiter Signal and the show at Linux Unplugged. I'm sorry if you're on Twitter, though. I am so sorry. But if you are, you should definitely be following those accounts. You made that choice, okay? That's your fault. That's on you. You can't blame Westride for that. Make it better by following us. So what could we do as Linux? Let's say we've been equipped with the ability to assemble masses of developers, wave magic wands, and solve a problem that would make us instantly more competitive with commercial systems. What could we change today? And I I think this, you know, could be one of those things where we could go on forever. We could have a whole dedicated podcast on this, but I'm sure some of us have thoughts and so I thought we could just kick them around a little bit and and give our opinions on some areas that Linux could shore up a little bit or a lot of bit to be fully competitive with macOS or Windows or maybe it's Android or iOS. It's it's up to each one of us to decide uh, and and maybe give a few opinions on how to get that started. So uh, to kick things off, because um, I like to uh, apparently punish Drew this week, I'm going to send it to Drew. I will take that abuse and roll with it. <laughs> Good man. The thing that I really want to see move forward is audio and video support and capabilities. And I know Pipewire is coming, and I have high hopes for Pipewire. But looking back through the history of it, you know, ALSA and the OSS sound system and Pulse Audio and and all of the video issues that we've had throughout time, you know, a lot of it comes down to proprietary codecs, but a lot of it also comes down to the fact that I always feel like everything that I'm touching in regards to audio and video is designed by and for engineers and not really for real people. So when you compare against something like Mac OS or Windows, where everything is I'd like to say much simpler, but honestly, on Windows, it's it's kind of terrible there, too. But Mac has it down with their audio interfaces and the way that it all works. It is super simple and slick and easy to use. And there's no wonder that so many professional audio people tend to run Macs for, you know, DJ sets or for music composition or whatever. And I think Linux really could be competitive in that space, but we need to get there. We need to make it more accessible. And I want to see that happen. Yeah, you know, I'm right there with you. 100% right there with you. Um, If you could, and I know this is kind of just a rando, but if you could just kick it off in one direction, where would you start? Would it be Pipewire? Yeah, I think so. I think getting Pipewire up and running and simple and easy to use as well as you know really taking over the jack stack and making it more transparent and easier for people to really get going get ingrained with and removing those barriers to entry would be a huge step please i mean linux is so powerful and flexible and can be tuned to do very specific things so there's no reason why we can't have super performant video and audio applications ready to go it just needs that work to turn it into a real monster of a multimedia production system i think that you know unification that um 
that Pipewire offers is maybe one of the things that's going to be present throughout a lot of these Linux criticisms is just there are so many different systems. I recently wanted to, you know, set up my main microphone running through Jack with a pair of Bluetooth headphones running on Pulse, and that is a whole adventure I would never like to repeat. But, you know, it's the same about so many things, including things like, you know, developer docs or how do you actually target, quote-unquote, Linux. I was just reading an internet discussion today that was super, super, super critical of Systemd, as if it was five years ago. And they were just rapidly discussing how horrible it is and how anti-Unix it is. And I think I think a, a part of what has kept that conversation going is, it's true, it is less Unix-like. But when I look at those clips that we just played earlier today, and we were talking about rolling out a competitive modern file system for a Linux workstation... And one of the bits that has to be solved is how the system handles a failed disk. Well, you have to make changes across multiple projects, the bootloader, the kernel, and systemd. And if if instead of systemd, it was five different projects, it literally would never get done. But because it's now three projects, it is actually possible for us to create something that isn't user-hostile. And I don't know how to explain this to people who are so anti-systemd. I agree, we did indeed lose something. But the benefits have been numerous from management to predictability to simple coordination of development. And it is really hard to quantify that kind of stuff. But I think what you're talking about, Drew, here with Pipewire would bring a cohesiveness that systemd brings at the system level that would be not nearly as controversial. And Brent, I bet you have some along these same lines here when it comes to professional camera gear. When I was reflecting on this question, I one thing I thought was, yeah, of course, audio and video. That's our, our thing around here. But I thought, what are the things that we take for granted? And And one thing that I use all the time that I take for granted is the software in my, my pro photo cameras, uh, or any camera for that matter. And it's, it, it has been sort of a dream of mine for a long time, and I would imagine others, and we've had hints of sort of addressing that, but having some open source firmware on those things would be pretty neat because that cameras are really getting to a place where they are just computers with a lens stuck on them now. Uh, and so it would be really amazing to see what could happen in that space if only we had a little bit of access and a little bit of um, open software running on them. No kidding. No kidding. At that level, oh man, what a game changer. So, uh, Mr. Bacon, you've been a Linux user for, um, let's just say, longer than some of my children have been alive. I'm curious what you would change. One thing that some of the proprietary offerings like Mac OS and, and Windows um, do provide is that installation experience. It's dead simple. It's pretty much stayed the same you know, throughout the years. And as a new user, if you're coming into to Linux, there's so many different variations of installers, right? You have Anaconda that Red Hat and Fedora use. You have Calamares that Manjaro, KDE Neon, uh, Distant that uh, Elementary and Pop! OS use, uh, Ubiquity that Ubuntu and some Debian systems use. I feel like at some point we need to kind of unify these installers to create the same uh, human interface kind of guidelines throughout them. Uh, and one of the the real things that that I appreciated about what Elementary and, and Pop! OS did 
is that they decided just to build their own, um, which again, kind of, you know, segments the, the installer market for Linux, but they really thought about, you know, the key goal there was getting the OS installed to the drive as quickly as possible. And personally, it's one of my favorite installers and, and Calamari's really has attempted to kind of bridge that gap. So it's uh, distro agnostic, right? You can you can use it for whatever project you're working on, building your own Linux distribution. You can really customize it as well. But everybody has their own kind of way that they've done it in their own, you know, Ubiquity is primarily Python. I think uh, the elementary uh, distant is basically Rust with um, Vala and GTK on top of it. Um, so I, w- I would love to see that kind of unified, even if we're using different installers, that same um, human interaction guidelines set forth through all of these installers so that whenever you get to partitioning, it's going to look very similar, if not the same, on Fedora as it would on Elementary or Pop or Ubuntu or anything else like that. Wouldn't that be something? A universal Linux installer that is the same distro installer for all of them. Maybe they each have their own, but then yet there's some like universal version you could use. Some sort of meta protocol free desktop installer dot D thing that you implement. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? What a world. You know, even the same process, right? So like you start out, you know, here, then you go to disk partitioning, then you go to user creation, and then you have your slideshow while the installation process is going on. But basically the same kind of following the same sort of guidelines for all of these installers across the board, I think would be would be a great step up, you know, in, in showing that we're kind of a unified operating system. Even if it's not the same installer, they're following the same basic principles. Yeah, I could see that actually working um, because here's my when I talk when we talk about this, my my target user is a developer, engineer, sysadmin, DevOps kind of user who is sitting down to use a professional grade workstation. Um, obviously, in Linux on the server, this is not really as much of an issue. You either build your own, you roll your own, you have some sort of deployment system, or you've learned just how to manage the system that you like to use, and you do it at scale. It's already solved. But at the desktop level, there's not like this minimum requirements of usability, options, uh, and standards for how to get Linux on a system. And that never even really occurred to me until you brought that up. Uh, Mr. Payne, you must be looking at the market. You're reviewing it. You're sitting back and going, we have to fix this in the next year to be competitive with commercial desktops. Okay, well, it's not really for me, um, but for some, some folks I know. And I think one thing, and it's, again, probably a result of just, you know, so many options, but uh, accessibility, Um you know there are there are things including including Orca if you need it on Linux and there's a variety of options and I think in one sense the open source nature and you know hack it in yourself means that there is a good potential and there might even be a lot of room for folks who need to implement these solutions themselves but anyone who's doing a ton of you know of exactly that work you were talking about stuff you know that you're doing everything in the shell or the terminal a text based interface they're using Mac OS because, you know, the screen reader is really great. They've got all kinds of stuff and you can use technology like uh, like Dragon's, you know, naturally speaking to talk to your computer if you're not able to type for whatever reason. And Linux, I think, is fragmented and probably behind. 
<sighs> yeah, that and that's that's one I I feel particularly bad about. I'm really glad you brought that up. Is that's an area where wouldn't it be fantastic if we were the default destination for people with uh, certain disabilities that made it harder to use the computer or nearly impossible? And if you could just say, well, Linux, that'd be great. It's a great point. The other thing that uh, Brent's pointing out that I think uh, we should uh, circle back to is sometimes, Brent, it's just simple stuff. It's just like the basics. Yeah, I have a few friends and family who I've helped sort of move to Linux for various reasons, and all of them repeatedly come to me with uh, desires to edit PDFs or do certain things with PDFs, like combine them or take pages out and stuff. And I know that is so simple, and there are solutions, but man, are they ever kind of clumsy. Um and I've explored this repeatedly over the years, and I haven't come up with anything that's as nice. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that we should come up with better PDF solutions. Part of my feeling is that, well, why is PDF kind of the format out there? And that's a lot harder for us to change because it's out of our control. But um, but those are the things that I see more often than not as as part of the challenge on Linux. Ah, the legacy problems of PDF. It's the language of business, Brent. You know, it's like uh, if it's a PDF, it must be unaltered so we can trust it. <laughs> yeah, right. That makes me vomit in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> I bet. I want to see the workstation be the, the best on the planet. I really think that the Linux desktop should be a shining example of technical excellence. And um, maybe that means it doesn't have the best UI. Maybe that means it doesn't have the most common look. Maybe that means it has a couple of Electron apps. But I think the one area it should not ever compromise should be the technical excellence of the desktop. Multi-threaded, doesn't crash, runs reliably for months at a time. It should be the beacon of technical excellence. For any engineer or developer or admin who's sitting back and going, I want to deploy the most technically competent, the most technically superior workstation. It should be so far and above clear that that is Linux, that Windows or Mac OS never comes into the conversation. But quite frankly, that is not the situation today. Our file systems do not compete with commercial file systems. The multi-threaded aspects of GNOME are lacking. You know, if you looked at that from a commercial-grade operating system, whoever developed that operating system should be fired. We haven't gotten our act together on a 3D API that includes sound and 3D. Thankfully, thankfully, Vulkan came along, thankfully, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't something of our doing. There's so many areas where it feels like you're running a desktop environment on top of a command line environment, which is running on top of a kernel. You can feel that stack sometimes. There's some distributions like Fedora that get really close to bring it all together. And there's other distributions, SUSE, where it feels like they're millions of miles apart. Or Arch even. And the reality is, be selfish for a second. Wouldn't it feel incredible that every time you suggested someone install Linux on their machine, you knew with ultimate certainty in the back of your mind, it was the most technically competent piece of software they could be deploying on their desktop. There was nothing better. Windows wasn't going to do a better job technically. Mac OS didn't take better advantage of the hardware. It just was the best option. And 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 if Linux is not that, I think I I I just I think people will continue to buy MacBooks and Surfaces. Simply put, people who who are in the know, who appreciate 
these finer details about how software is actually built, who are evaluating things not based on the morality of software, but based on how it is designed and engineered, we've got to step up our game there. It's not, it's not a huge gap. It's not an impossible problem. It just requires organization at the lower levels, the medium levels, and the higher levels of the desktop stack. Something we haven't necessarily been great at in the past, but it's not that was, it's not outside our reach. My thing is very vague it, it, because it, it starts at the file system on the disk. It goes all the way up to the I.O. scheduler that's handling things like a browser that's using your GPU and your disk and your RAM at the same time while keeping all of your other applications on your desktop responsive. And it's vendor applications that take advantage of all that stuff because we have created an API. We've created a developer story, an inclusive developer story that tells them how to make fantastic software, taking advantage of all of the latest open source and free software development that's happened on the platform. And we don't have that today. So um, a week minus a day, it'll be Apple's first virtual WWDC, Worldwide Developer Conference. They may announce ARM Max in this conference. They may not. If they do, they will announce something that we as a community have half accomplished in the last half, I don't know, decade. They will announce an operating system that was originally built for power PC hardware, now running on ARM hardware. And they will have all of their applications ready to go. They will have their sound system. They will have their video system. They will have their desktop applications. They will have their web browser. And they will likely even have a large amount of commercial support going to the ARM platform. We could not do that. We could not just say all of Linux is switching to RISC-V processors and just have everything start switching over over the next five years. It would take 30 years and it would be half-assed and we'd still have people running 32-bit software on x86 processors. So some kind of singular vision on the workstation. There's projects out there. Canonical does this. Fedora does this. But we need something that's turned up to 11, that's looking at the desktop and, and really putting it all together and then evaluating where we lack and solving that problem. Because right now, for some work cases, I don't think we are technically the best solution. And man, does that, does that really burn me in 2020. Am I a bastard if I bring up Chrome OS here? No. No, I mean, I think that's a good example, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it is just that. And you hit on that, you know, um, some folks from the elementary OS side, I think, and as you said, canonical, like there just hasn't been that much pressure and you need an organization that is dedicated to touching all those places in the stack. And it is it is a hard problem. It's a distributed problem where there's so many different things to tune that you can tune, thankfully, but that you have to tune to get the desktop experience that I guess we're expecting from the proprietary world. I just want somebody to bring it all together. I want somebody who can look at GNOME Shell and say, fix these 10 areas of GNOME Shell. I want somebody who can look at our 3D APIs and say, let's reach out to these two vendors and solve this problem. And I want somebody who can just look at the whole picture, Wes. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, you've got to pay for it, right? And there are organizations that this work is getting done. It's just not enough and, you know, too little and the world keeps changing and we have to try and keep up. There are hopes, right? We've we've gotten things better with Wayland and with Pipewire and with Vulkan and with Systemd. I think there has been some consolidation and modernization, but we're definitely not there yet. 
And it's not lost on me that maybe we would lose something kind of special if that did happen. Yeah, I mean, there's no Sparky Linux for Mac OS, right? Boy, it's a it's a tricky thing. It's and maybe and maybe the more realistic answer is something more closer to the middle and maybe we are starting to see that more and more elementary OS, Fedora workstation, Ubuntu, especially in conjunction with with vendors like Lenovo and Dell feel like we're starting to see them address each one of these issues, starting with the low-hanging fruit and working their way up. But if I were in the industry right now and I were looking to burn a few grand on a laptop, it feels like still a bit of a gamble on a Linux machine. I, I know me personally, it would be fine. But if I were someone who maybe I was going independent for the first time and I'm starting my own firm, and traditionally I worked at a shop that used Mac or Windows, I, I I just recently had a conversation with somebody about this. So this is where this is coming from. And they chose to go with Windows. You know, we talked about Linux as an option, but they were buying Alienware hardware. <laughs> and they just wanted to get, you know, all $4,000 worth of the Alien hardware and it shipped with Windows 10. And they, they ultimately decided to stay with it. And I couldn't make the argument because they were doing OBS and live streaming. And my argument was, you can do it on Linux. And that wasn't good enough because, well, it's supported on Windows and it might be even slightly better in this scenario with Windows. And I couldn't, I just couldn't seal the deal. It was awkward because this just recently happened to me and I used to make a living on going into places and selling them on switching their servers from Windows to Linux. And here I was in 2020 trying to convince a client of mine that they should deploy OBS on Ubuntu 2004, and they were buying alien hardware to do it, and they wanted to do live streaming, and they decided to stay with Windows 10. And I and I didn't push super hard because I just, I couldn't quite articulate like the killer reason they had to switch to Ubuntu. All my reasons were you can do the same thing. That's hard. Um, there's a natural place where Linux and open source excels when you need that customization, right? Sometimes you buy an off-the-shelf solution, and sometimes you hire a sysadmin who assembles that stuff and maintains it for you. And that's really where Linux excels when, you know, you can do something slightly better because you had all the knobs and available things for you to use. And then there's also the philosophical side, the, the just belief in free software and open source software, and then that's fundamentally often a better way to do things. And when you take that out of the equation and you just have an end user who has a computing task, it gets a little more dicey. When it isn't um, infrastructure that you depend on for 10 years and you need transparency and you need modularity and you need customizability. <laughs> you know, going back to the Fedora Working Group, uh, one of the comments that uh, was made by the Facebook developers is they've essentially rolled their own container solution. They don't use Docker, but they took a look at the world of container technologies and said, you know what, we'll just use the primitives provided by the operating system and we'll roll our own container solution. And that is extremely common on Linux at scale in the enterprise and is extremely uncommon on the desktop. That modularity, that customizability, that choose your own solution is the very thing that appeals to production environments and it's the very kind of thing that doesn't seem to work in consumer environments. And I think this is where we have this impedance mismatch and we kind of just ride the middle. 
And I have to say, as a longtime Linux user, the trend is better. Like the trend is improvement and things do seem to be getting simpler. Setting up your video, setting up your audio, getting 3D acceleration, getting playback of H.264 and MP3 codecs, all of that is so much simpler than it even was four, five, or 10 years ago. And there is a steady march towards it, but this was really an idea of if we could just change something right away and just really amp up the competitiveness of the desktop, these are the things we would do. And the reality is, if you wait long enough, a lot of this stuff does tend to arrive to desktop Linux. It just, it takes time for development and the right parties to get interested and then spend the resources on it. I think we've probably talked that one out. We got more for the post show, but I'd love to get your ideas or, or your thoughts on this particular topic, linuxunplugcom slash contact, or join us live, get in that mumble room, hang out with us. Just go Google search Jupiter Colony Mumble. You'll get our setup guide. You can come right in and tell us your thoughts or hang out in that IRC room, irc.geekshed.net pound Jupiter Broadcasting. But I think that just about wraps us up for this week's episode of the Unplugged program. Go get more Wes at Wes Payne. Go get more, more me at Chris Lass and the whole show at Linux Unplugged. See you next Tuesday! Sacrifice the entire state of Delaware to appease the sun god. <laughs> it's so hot. It is it is dysfunctionally hot here. I, I think I am seeing unicorns right now. Either that or unicorns live in Lady Jupes. I'm not sure. It, it may be the unicorns actually just live here now. <laughs>